0: A hard a fall to war he can lexicon, ta okay an special ta ag in the noct, a keller a, So on behalf of Doan Learaddaang uh, Library Service, I'd like to welcome you all for this ultimate, I think we'll have to call it, celebration of Saint Bridget and the influences that she has had on all our lives. I was trying to think of something wishy to say as I was coming in, but of course, The only thing I could think was that my sister, Marion, stole the Bridget. She was called Marion Bridget. And then I got Carmel Mary, which was very common in the 50s and 60s. But at last we've got a woman, we've got uh, a bank holiday. So it's upwards and onwards. Uh, A couple of housekeeping points just in the unlikely event of a fire alarm. Your exits are to my left. At either end of the studio. I'd really like to thank, thank Martina Devlin for pulling this programme together. The caliber, the people, the speakers who are available here tonight. Um, we do things right here in Dunleary, I think you'll agree. <laughs> so let's sit back and enjoy, and I'll hand over to Martina, a great friend to us all here in Dunleer at Down Library Service. Martina. <laughs>
1: scaring Carmel by coming up behind her. I was hoping someone would shout, don't look behind you. Well, look, it's St. Bridget's Eve, uh, Law lawful fail of Rita tomorrow, and you're all very welcome to this Wild Women event where we're going to celebrate unruly, unmanageable women because there aren't enough of them in the world. Um, thanks to Carmel... Kelly, the senior executive librarian here for inviting me to program the event. It's been a great opportunity for me to invite some of my favorite women to come along and speak. And the main idea behind it is to celebrate a swashbuckling, dynamic, productive woman called Bridget, Breed, Biddy... Bride, bride Bridey, whatever you're having yourself. By the way, tomorrow's the first day of Irish Spring, uh, in case you didn't notice. We were all digging out our winter coats coming along tonight. But what strikes me about it all is that it's 1,500 years next year since uh, Bridget died, and it's only taken a millennium and a half for us to have our own bank holiday uh, in honour of her. Um, On the bill, it's in three little sections. On the bill, we're going to begin with uh, Dr. Alva Smith, who's um, another of those unruly, unmanageable women, I'm happy to say, who will be talking about Bridget and uh, the Celtic goddess. We then, the next section is... um, actor and life coach, Lisanne McLaughlin, who will be reading an extract from a play about another swashbuckler of a woman, Countess Markievich. Uh, Full disclosure, I wrote the play. (laughs) And after each section, there'll be an opportunity for people to ask questions. Um, There'll be a roving mic. So if you have any questions in your head, Hold on to them and ask. And then the third and final part of the evening, and the whole thing will last about two hours, is a panel discussion uh, chaired by broadcaster Flora McCarthy. And with uh, an exceptional panel of women, we have RT Nationwide's Zainab Boladil. We have Senator Eileen Flynn, who's hot-footed it from the Oireachtas to be here. We have writer Sarah Webb, and we have Irish Times columnist Justine McCarthy. And they're going to be talking about some of the inspirational women um, who've helped them get to where they are. So, uh, Alva Smith. Alva is a lifelong campaigner for women's rights, for uh, workers' rights, for LGBT rights. Um, She's a living legend in our household, and I think you'll all see why. Over to Alva.
2: Good evening. It's lovely to see you all here, and it's lovely to see all of us gathered here to celebrate Law or Fail of Regia, or Biddy's Day, as we used to call it when I was um, at school. And I think we called it Biddy's Day not out of any disrespect, but out of a kind of affection and a sort of longing to have our own day, uh, our own saint, and indeed here we have, here we have it. Um, Martina asked me really to talk with you about Bridges, and of course I'm not a historian, I'm not somebody who works on myth and legend, none of those sorts of things. So, this is just me thinking aloud with you about Bridget. Bridget is an immensely powerful and quite unique figure in Irish myth and history. And the fact that it's taken so long for her Catholic feast day to be elevated to secular national public holiday status is most surely a measure of two very significant and starkly opposing strands in Irish society. The deeply embedded roots of patriarchy on the one hand and on the other, the strength and tenacity of women's struggle for freedom and liberation and equality on the other. Bridget is celebrated as both pagan goddess and Catholic saint, with the lines between them hazy and blurred, making her really a very elusive figure. We weave at will and according to need between the goddess and the flesh and blood woman saint, allowing the one to melt into the other, Brigid is a wondrously elastic and flexible figure, a shapeshifter, the very embodiment of the capacity and power of myth to say what we need to hear at a given moment in time, to embody life-sustaining values, to symbolise meanings that can help us to make sense of the world and our experience. And to create that world anew when that is what we need to do to ensure our survival and flourishing. It's not wrong to say that we invent and reinvent the myths we need to live by. What we know of Bridget through myth, legend, and history is that she was a multi-talented woman. For the Tour de Danan, She was a triple goddess, worshipped as the goddess of healing and water, of fire and alchemy and of poetry. She was also worshipped, of course, as the goddess of Imbolc, the goddess of spring, fertility, life, regeneration. For the Catholic Church, she is revered as the first nun, at least in Ireland that we know of, as the founding abbess of a religious order, the Order of the Brigidines take their inspiration from her life, and as a healer and a protector, especially of women and of animals. She is known to have dedicated her life to the care and protection of the poor, the sick and the hungry. This remarkable woman, in both legend and history, was undoubtedly a visionary as well as a healer, a warrior as much as a protector, defending the rights and lives of those in her care. And also, I would suggest to you, a rebel and a very astute strategist. After all, you don't end up owning half of Kildare without being clever, ambitious, and, I'm speculating, probably as tough as old boots. Legend tells us that she had no truck with conventions or rules and was a bit of a rebel. She refused to marry, as her father ordered her to do, declaring instead that she would lead her own independent life. Whether that life was entirely celibate is a moot point, and not one ever mentioned discreetly by the Catholic Church. She is reputed to have taken a woman to her bed, which seems to indicate that today she might well have been a member of my very own LGBTIQ community. She is also, of course, and very importantly, reputed to have been an expert midwife who helped women in need of abortion as she had the power, being an alchemist, of making a pregnancy disappear. She must have had, that Bridget, the courage of a lioness. By all accounts, she was prompt to speak up, undoubtedly determined, and brooked no opposition. She certainly needed gumption and guts galore to stand up to the bishops and to anyone who stood in her way. From all we know, it's clear that Bridget also had a heart as big and as open as the sky. She is said to have had a food store which never ever ran out and to have spread her cloak across the land over the whole of Leinster to create a lake of milk, which is just what you can do if you're the goddess of fire and alchemy, whatever about a saint, and what we should all be doing globally to stop the scourge of famine and drought. In short, we know and we imagine Bridget as a powerful, successful, generous, brave and compassionate leader, who forged ahead, intrepid and undaunted by the challenges before her, with a strong vision of what a humane and equal world should and could be. For all the advances humanity has made since the time of Bridget, It is the saint. It is still a harsh and brutal world for the majority of the global population. Misogyny, racism, ableism, homo and transphobia, classism, ageism, you name it, continue to shape, to disempower, to undermine and to damage the lives of so very many people. Even here, in our immensely privileged European enclave, we are not at all immune. Right now, Times are especially tough and volatile, bedeviled as we are by war and its terrible consequences for ordinary people. Growing economic hardship, huge displacements of people throughout the world, a lurking fear that COVID is just the beginning of rolling deadly pandemics, not to mention endemic worldwide violence against women and girls. And of course, but why is this always last? The realisation that we are in the rapidly accelerating process of destroying our planet and humanity with it beyond the point of no return. We must not, and indeed we cannot, keep going this way if we are uh, if, if the way we are, if our human lives and endeavours have any meaning and value for us at all. We need to get ourselves out of the chaos and the mess we've created. We need vision to find the way towards a radically, wildly different future, committed to an equal enjoyment of life for all. We need leaders passionately committed to equality and justice for everyone, without distinction of any kind, committed to life, to compassion and love, not cruelty, selfishness and greed. Grasping for personal power, for privilege and benefits, with obscene profits for a tiny elite. We need leaders who stand with us, who lead from below, from the grassroots, who guide and support us to become stronger, kinder, and more generous, and to see further and wider, way beyond ourselves, and our infinitesimal place in the universe and the cosmos. We need heroes for our time, our time of touch and go, make or break, for humanity, I ask you, what better, stronger inspiration could women and girls, especially, hope to have than Bridget, this fearless woman who refused to be cowed by any man, by any problem, by any challenge? The goddess Bridget, the visionary, the healer, the warrior, can I think inspire and move us to imagine and to create a new world order, where the flourishing of every single living creature will be the aim of all. Brigid, the abbess, the leader, the powerful woman of action, can show us by her legendary example how we can begin to make that world a reality, not just a dream. Uh, In conclusion, a few words about the here and now, with my feet very firmly planted back on the ground. I've had the very great good luck recently to be working together with a bunch of much younger women, much, much younger women, feminists, planning a protest march for International Women's Day this year. There's so much to be angry about, so much that has to change before we get anywhere near to being the kind of society that everybody can live in with a bit of space and joy and ease and comfort and safety and security. By that, I mean, to a place of openness and inclusion where all women and girls feel safe and respected and valued as full citizens, as well as having a roof over their heads, enough food to feed themselves and their families, proper health care, satisfying steady, decently paid jobs, as well as time for fun and play and pleasure, without which life is just bleak drudgery. I was so struck, I'm not sure struck is the right word, maybe a bit awed, by the freshness and the determination of these young women. So competent, multi-skilled, knowledgeable, well-informed, sensitive, so aware of all that continues to divide women, whether that's class or disability or ethnicity, sexuality, gender identity, age, or some kind of mix of all of those and more. I was awed by their passionate, and I still am, their passionate determination to go on working for change and above all by their belief that we can do much, much, much more and go much, much, much further and do it much better because the lives and the happiness of women and girls and therefore, surprise, surprise, of men and boys depend upon it. Just for starters, not a bother on them, their initial demands... the protest are stop gender violence and femicide, housing, emergency action, unite against sexism, racism, ableism, transphobia, solidarity with global global feminist struggles, which of course just about covers a multitude. What an agenda. I actually think they're just brilliant and it makes me think that it seems at least as if they've all had a good dose of the Brigids. And on Bridget's day tomorrow, on the first day of spring in Bolog, season of rebirth and regeneration, I strongly recommend that we all take a few moments to imbibe the spirit of that wonderful Bridget, her power and her poetry, her courage and her competence, her valour and also her tenderness. And strengthened by this dose of the Bridgets, release and liberate the wild woman inside you. Warn everyone around to watch out as you give her free rein. Go for it and see what happens. Honestly, it could be great, and it could be world-changing. Long may we celebrate Bridget and everything she stands for. Thank you very much.
1: Alva, could you join me over here? And just while you're doing that, um, David, if you could get the roving mic. So, no Alva needs that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have a question for you. Um, I was very struck by you saying that you know, we need heroes for our times. Can you... Can you tell us what your definition of a hero would be? And does the type of hero you need change from decade to decade or generation to generation?
2: Well, I, uh, I suppose it does, really, although fundamentally the kinds of qualities that I was ascribing to this mythical figure, Brigid, which are, you know, those qualities of courage and compassion, fundamentally, and of the capacity to, to challenge and to rebel and to ask questions, not for oneself, not for personal gain, um, but in the collective interest. It seems to me that um, those are all qualities that we really very badly need in the world today. And I think it was so interesting when, uh, just just last week, when Jacinda Ardern, when she mm. resigned and very, you know, she's so direct about it. She said, look, I just haven't got in the tank anymore. I just can't do this. And it, it struck me that what really she had been doing was giving all of her, herself, her feeling, her empathy, her compassion, her understanding, that that was a very key part of her leadership, as we knew during the pandemic and the, the awful uh, catastrophe in, in, in New Zealand, in, in Wellington, or, at Wellington or Christchurch, that she was doing this during the terrible shooting. That this was a woman who was giving all of her lovingness and all of her tenderness and all of her desire to embrace the people, that she was giving that out, and that there is, it's not a bottomless pit, you know, you, you have to kind of replenish that. But it did make me think about the sort of leadership. That we actually need at the moment. It is the capacity to be strong, to be powerful, to be, to be firm, uh, to do all the the strong Bridget things, and to, to run your monasteries and so on and so forth. While at the same time, being fundamentally a person looking out and giving rather than taking. And that, that I think is as important. It's not just ever about taking. Material things. It is also about how we take power for ourselves, take it onto ourselves, and try and hold on to it and own it. Um, and that—that that is not working. It's unusual to surrender power. Well, I mean, just look at patriarchy, and uh, I think that that point is well proven. It's very difficult, I think, we have to—we have to think about so important, and I think feminism has certainly always done this for me, is to think about what is the power for, who is it for, what is it for, as well as how we use it. So it's not for your personal gain, it has to be for something which is in a way outside of yourself.
1: Mm. And there's always a price to be paid, I think, as Jacinda Ardern has shown us, you know, the tank is dry. Does anyone have a question for Alva? By the way, I should um, tell you that this event is being recorded to go up on the library website, so just be aware of that. Does anyone have a question? Yes. Could you just shout it out really loud because you don't have a mic? Yeah. Thank you.
2: So we are we talking about nuns and women in yeah. religious life? Um, I'm, I'm only an expert on that in the sense that I was at a school, a convent school. And I have to say that I had the, I think, great good fortune to have been educated by nuns who were uniformly wonderful, actually. I, I didn't have a bad experience. So I think that we have to be very careful and understand that women religious were very often, in a way, kind of coerced and forced into behaving in ways which were definitely reprehensible and, and that has marked our society, I think, in ways that are really very difficult and that we're only, only beginning over the past couple of decades, I think, to, to look at and, and to face up to. Um, but being a nun was, for such an incredibly long time, the only way that a woman could have any kind of independent career. I mean, I think it's it, it, it's not an accident that I quoted the legend about Bridget that she, uh, and, and which comes down to her sainthood, not just the the, the goddess that comes down to the Catholic Church, that she refused to follow her fa- father's orders and married the man he had chosen for her on the basis that she wanted to live an independent life. And, Her, you know, she chose to do that through the church, through the church at that time. And I think that that went on for a very, very long time um, for women religious. I think there are very complex histories of of women religious. Um, Did I ever want to be a nun? No, I didn't. No, I didn't, because you had to answer to the bishop. But I never liked the bishops. I'm sorry, never liked the bishops. I still don't like the bishops. I was just uh, saying before we came in, and uh, I'll, I'll do this quickly, um, that I was really very shocked yesterday when I saw a tweet by a friend of mine, uh, with an article quoting the Bishop of El Finn, who was saying that, well, we have to be really very careful these days, because basically, men are out there being angry and aggressive because of feminists' aggression. And I just thought, what world? Does this man inhabit? Where did he come from? Where did they get him? How is he actually he is using women as a kind of as an excuse for a particularly toxic form of masculinity which is roaming around our country at the present time um, with the most horrible racism and misogyny and transphobia and it is, it is quite horrible. And we have to tackle it and and confront it. And there we have a bishop of the Holy Roman Catholic Church who is effectively standing up and blaming women. Now that for me is not just one step too far. That is about 300 miles too far for me. And I think we really have to stand up and object and say this is not good enough. It is not. We do not expect this and we do not need this from leaders in any sphere, whether it's in the political life, in religious life, in social life more broadly, this is reprehensible because it in effect sets people against one another. And it makes you know, it stirs anger, it stirs the anger, it agitates. So I was very, very, very cross and angry because there is a man in whom there is trust and confidence who has gravely abused that. And I think that's a disgrace. You may not agree with me, I just think it's an absolute disgrace.
1: Does anyone else have a question for Alva?
2: Probably not after that rather noisy outburst.
1: (laughs) There is a roving mic if anyone uh, needs one at the back.
2: You are very welcome to ask a question. I won't shout. (laughs) Yes?
1: Oh, what was that? Yeah, Jacinda Ardern, did she feel under supported or was she, yeah, did she get enough support in her role? And I wonder if she, and perhaps this is something Alva can answer, did Jacinda get enough support as Premier of New Zealand, and also, is the question, but it also occurs to me, apropos that, has she done other political leaders in the world a favour by standing
2: up and saying, I'm human, I'm not a machine? Well, she may have done a very great, well, she may have done a favour, but I doubt that men will listen to it, of saying, I know when I've given what I can and what's worth giving. I know when what I have left is not enough for the job. And I think that's a very important thing, as we know, to be able to recognise in ourselves that we can't any longer deliver in the way that we should, particularly if we're in positions where much is expected of us, as is the case, you know, with politicians, I have great sympathy with politicians. So I think that that was something incredibly brave, because I can't think of anybody ever who's who's got up and said that mm-hmm. uh, in that kind of position. You know, it was very, very unusual thing, very unusual, and I think she's taken a lead in that regard, which is very good. Will men listen to her? Well, that's up to them. I don't know. I, you know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. Did she get enough support? Prob- probably. I don't. I, how do I know? She obviously has a lovely partner. She has a baby. She has a, a life that's a very full life. But lots of people have partners and babies and still go on. Many babies and, and go on and, and lead. It's very hard to know what support she had or what support she needed. But the point was that she had given a lot of herself. She came to a particular moment and she said, that's not there anymore. I can't really give this job my all, so I'm going to step down and do something else. And the capacity to recognise that in yourself, I think, is a mark of great integrity, but also great personal strength. And I've absolutely no doubt that we'll hear from that woman again Mm -hmm. in some other... Uh, capacity. I really admire that. I admire I admired the ability to step away from power because, of course, it's so seductive. And um, I, I mean, I, I don't think any of us would say that power isn't attractive and seductive. And well, maybe now, maybe I'm just talking for myself. How do I know? It is very, there is something wonderful about that feeling of I am powerful. And it is very hard to step back, but I think it's also very important to be able to do that and to say, I'm going to turn my face in another direction. I don't know if Bridget ever did that, by the way, but it seems to me that she probably never did because she had all of this visionary poetry and alchemy alchemy and fire going on that she got from you know, the gods on
1: high. Was there anything that surprised you about Bridget during your research?
2: Yeah, I never knew she was a lesbian. (laughs) (laughs) And Actually, I was absolutely floored. I said, goodness, I never came across that legend before. And I think it was in, there's a lovely man, Sandy Dunlop, who does a lot of work on mythology. And um, it, it came up in, I think, one of the stories he had. Uh, about her, and I looked at this, and I thought, my goodness, I, I know, I did know that she had disappeared, a pregnancy, um, but uh, I mean, there are so many legends about Bridget. We're only, uh, as far as I understand it, beginning to gather them up uh, now, and they are all about have, her having these amazing, magical powers. Um, I think, quite honestly, any leader today. Does need amazing and magical powers because, you know, as I was saying when I in my few words, we are in the most unholy mess. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about it. There are such challenges before us all. I think, I think you have to be brave to step forward to be a leader and indeed to be in politics. And I take my hat off to all those uh, who do it. But you, you have to. You have to be brave, and you have to be prepared to really take on very, very, very difficult challenges and mm-hmm. issues now. And if I were 25, I'd go for it. Would you? Would you run? I would. I would. But it, you know, when I was 25, girls didn't do that kind of thing, and they certainly didn't do it. Um, Mrs. You... Thatcher did. Well, please, really. <laughs> she did. <laughs> First time I've been in any way compared to Mrs. Thatcher, I have to yeah. say. Just I wasn't first...
1: comparing you to no,
2: Mrs. There's a first for everything. <laughs> but by and large, it was very difficult. And then subsequently, when I you know, became involved in feminism and the women's movement, mine by... were not the kind of politics that would have had a chance in hell of getting anywhere uh, in Ireland, or indeed pretty well anywhere in the world.
1: You needed to get into a party. Uh, well, parties perhaps were. Yes,
2: well, actually, I mean, women did run as independents so and were not necessarily on, always unsuccessful. But then, and also then when I came out as lesbian, that that was absolutely the kibosh. And that came at a moment in my life chronologically when it was, you know, what kind of direction do I go in? Do I stay? Um, in a university being an academic and try and cause trouble there or do I move out into the world? Because it would be about that age that I could have made maybe a break, but I was carrying I was carrying baggage, I was carrying burdens that did not make me an attractive proposition for any political party looking at the electorate. Um, Because I was not prepared to say I wasn't a feminist and I was not prepared to say I wasn't lesbian and I also actually wasn't prepared, wasn't prepared to say I wasn't socialist. So, you know, my, my chances were kind of a bit slim. But I look back on that and people say, oh, you know, it, uh, what is it? The road not taken, which mm. I think is always stupid, actually, because I, you go the way you go. And I'm very, but I'm very aware that there were moments that I had when I did stop and think and say, I'd love that. Mm. And I would mm. have loved it. I would have loved. It. I don't know if I'd have lasted even as long as Jacinda Ardern, but I would have loved it. Yes. Well, it on would've... the other hand, I've also loved, and I do love, being outside on the edge of the system, and being able to bang away at it and give out and criticise and challenge mm-hmm. and push.
1: Yeah, would have certainly shaken up Dol Erin, wouldn't it? <laughs> Dr. Alva Smith, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> The next part of the programme um, uh, is uh, one of my favourite actors, Lisanne McLaughlin, also a life coach, who will read an extract from Call Me Madam, which is a political satire about Countess Markievicz.
3: Right. Well, now, this is a different thing. It's a really interesting piece that um, Martina has created here. And this is an extract uh, from from a play. It's just a short extract to give you a flavor of it and to give you a flavor of Countess Markovitch. And in this, a young woman, Aoife Blanchard, has actually materialized Countess Markovitch. And they're going to have a conversation. So it's set in the present day, in a first-floor apartment in a red brick house on the South Circular Road in Dublin. And Eva comes in, and she's wearing a T-shirt and jeans, and then she stops, surprised, because there's somebody else in the room, wearing a military-styled jacket and an ankle-length skirt. And this is Countess Markovitch, and I'm going to be playing both of these characters, so stick with me here, OK? <laughs> Kindly stop staring at me, young woman. Don't you know it's rude to stare? Could somebody please open a window? It's very hot in here. oh, forgive me i wasn't i-i wasn't expecting it to work um, especially not the first time i've I've never attempted a materialisation before, but here you are I mean, it is you, isn't it, Countess Markovitch? You are addressing Constance to Markovitch. Yes, have we met? um no, I'm afraid not. You've been dead for nearly a hundred years. Really, this is too ridiculous. Well, since there's no one to introduce us, we must do it ourselves. How do you do? Aoife Blanchard, it's an honour to meet you, Countess. You address me as Madam, not Countess. Miss Blanchard, I really think you might stop gawping. You look as if you've seen a ghost. Oh, but I have, Madam, you're one. I mean, a ghost. I've summoned you up from the dead. And here you are, just as real as if your flesh and blood well, of course I'm real. Well, well, actually, you aren't. I mean, I can prove it. What is today's date? Um, well, July fifteenth, nineteen twenty-seven. Well, how interesting. That's the day you died. Hmm. Here is today's newspaper. The date's on the front. See, April the second. April second. There's something familiar about that date. Oh, I have it. April the 2nd is when I was named Minister for Labour and a dashed fine one I was too. Took no nonsense from anyone. That was April the 2nd, 1919. Look again at the date, madam. It says April the 2nd, 2022. And look outside. It's a completely different world to the one that you know. Gracious me, what a lot of motor cars. And they're positively whizzing along. Where are all the horses? Oh, replaced by the engine. Well, no harm, I dare say. Some of the poor beasts were treated abysmally. I am finding this rather a lot to take in. I wonder if I'm in the middle of a dream. Could I have eaten something? Mm. I seem to recall a horrid bout of indigestion and someone saying I really ought to see a doctor. Look here, on my laptop, it's a photograph of your funeral. And the newspaper account... What is that malevolent looking thing? Remove it at once. All right, let me just read it to you. Large numbers of people marched in the funeral procession of Madame Markovitch, TD, yesterday afternoon. Several thousand lined the route through the city. A guard of Fiena Aaron boys dressed in green uniforms led the way. They were followed by the brass band of the Irish national foresters and a detachment of the citizen army. Members of the 1916 club came next. They carried a big floral cross with the inscription, In loving memory of our old comrade. A big contingent of girls and women representing the come and the morn, the clan the gale, and the Women's Defence League. Well, that is some photograph, madam. I mean, it shows the city at a standstill. Well, I, I must admit it is rather gratifying, if somewhat unsettling. Um, tell me, did Casimir... Managed to attend? Oh, he certainly did. It says here, your husband is in one of the morning coaches, and he came to see you before you died, with a bunch of roses as big as himself. Oh, good old Cassie. Extravagant as the Taj Mahal, he'd polish his boots with champagne if he could. Oh, he sounds like a bit of crack. Well, indeed, but no interest in revolution, unfortunately. we drifted apart. Uh, could I? Could I be under anaesthetic? And I've heard about people having the most vivid hallucinations during surgery. I'm afraid you're dead and buried, Countess. You're lying in the Republican plot in Glasnevin, surrounded by people you used to know. De Valera and Collins and Casement and Cahill Brewer. It's a top-of-the-range line-up. I can call up a picture of your headstone if you like. Oh, no! I have no desire to see my headstone. Just supposing what you say is true. I know it's a lot to take in, Countess. But but how did you convey me here, from wherever I was? Well, it was a fluke, really. I needed something you owned for the... I don't like to call it a a séance, because that sounds kind of spooky. For the process, let's say. For best results, an item that belonged to the subject is recommended. That is what the online guide to Raising the Dead said. Oh, for crying out loud. I've heard some tall tales in my time, but this takes a biscuit. You really expect me to believe that you engage in some hocus-pocus, and snapped me back to life. But that's exactly what happened. Or though I think it was your gloves that did the trick. You are talking in riddles, young woman. You see, I knew there were exhibits in museums with your hats and revolvers and so on, but museums are unbelievably touchy about lending them out. So I went to Lisadell, but I found nothing. But while I was in Sligo, I came across an old pair of gloves in a charity shop, They were pretty manky, I have to say. But something told me to take a closer look here. I haven't laid eyes on them since Noah was a boy. I lost them at a soiree in Dublin Castle. Frightful crush. Cassie and I took one look and bolted. Well, I found your initials inside. C-G-B for Constant Score Booth. And I took a chance and brought them to use. And I think they must have been the clincher in making the... um, process work. To be honest, I only use candles for the atmosphere. Shabby old gloves. But you're quite right. They are mine. My sister Eva gave them to me and embroidered my initials inside. How very enterprising of you, my dear. So you believe me now? I've always made it my business to believe in the impossible. Why not this? So, I'm dead. The free status. Didn't execute me, did they? I know I antagonised them dreadfully, nearly as much as I antagonise the British. I was condemned to death after the Rising, you know, by that pompous twerp of a tin soldier, General Maxwell. Not only that, he had the cheek to reprieve me too. Really, I said to the officer, communicating this day of execution, I do wish you chaps would make your minds up instead of flip-flopping back and forth. You can't have wanted to face a firing squad. Well, I don't like being treated differently, because I'm a woman. Look, would you be awfully good and tell me, how how did I die? Oh, it happened in hospital. Peritonitis, according to the history books. Don't worry, you weren't shot on the run or anything. I'm not in the least bit worried, Miss Blanchard. I never give in to fear. Ride the fear, don't let it ride you. That's what I told my men when we were under machine gun fire from the shellburn roof. Oh, how thrilling! Well it was rather, until we realized we were sitting ducks. I suppose I must have died in St. Patrick Tuns. I had a pain in my gut. I said I dropped Kathleen Lynn and have her give me the once over, but before I could, I, I passed out. And I, I don't remember anything after that. Incidentally, young woman, what exactly am I doing here in the future? Well, I appealed to the universe For you, to ask your advice. Proceed. Well, it's about political representation. Irish women have hardly any. It's utterly depressing. I belong to a group of volunteers working to overturn that. Oh, I say, good show, like the Irish volunteers. Well, no, we're not volunteers in a military sense. We're pressing for political change, but Progress is unbelievably slow, and I I thought you might be able to suggest ways to speed it up. Have you considered a revolution? Well, uh, guns just aren't so acceptable anymore, madam. Uh, No offence. I I know you were out in 1916. No offence taken, like many revolutionaries. I'm a pacifist by nature and inclination. When you were part of the revolution, it looked as though there'd be real political change. I mean to say, you were the first female MP, the first female TD, first female minister in Europe, second in the world. And it looked as though the old order was about to topple. We got the vote, and then stop right there. Reverse change, reverse gear engaged. Haven't, you, haven't any of your female Taoiseach made a difference? I'm sorry to say, Countess, there hasn't ever been a female Taoiseach. Not one. Not even one in an entire century. Well, we've had a, a few women in the number two slot, but we can't seem to climb any higher than Thornish. Fina Fall and Fina Gale have never even had a female leader. Change is starting to happen, but the pace is glacial. I thought if I materialized you, you might have some ideas that we could use. Well, the future is quite a disappointment. And to think that I was a minister in 1919. Full equality for all the children of the nation was simply a matter of time. So where did it all go wrong? Men wouldn't share. They still don't really want to. Not in their hearts. The majority, I mean, I mean, it's not fair to tar them all with the same brush. After the, after the Anglo-Irish treaty, that was back in 1921, my dear, I was there in the thick of it. Oh, yes, sorry, of course you were. Anyway, a sort of counter-revolution happened. Women were exempted from jury service, banned from state jobs once they got married, earned less than men when they could work. Once independence happened, Women were forced out of public life and back into the home. But home life is so dreary. I mean, it's all right in short bursts, but imagine being stuck in it. That's exactly what my mum says. And are married women still corralled into the home? Well, we have the same legal rights as men now. Barriers to education have gone. We're entitled to the same pay for the same work in principle, anyhow, but promotion, oh, that's slow, and leadership roles, no, that's an overreach. Well, Diamond Blast, how infuriating. I didn't risk bullets for a two-tier island. What kind of man is your current Taoiseach? Mm, Photogenic, (laughs) media savvy, handsome. Mm -hmm. Handsome is as handsome does. Is he kind? Is he hardworking? Is he effective? It's a frightful waste to have a duffer as Taoiseach. I wouldn't call him a duffer, and I'm sure he does work hard, as have been kind, I-, I can't say one way or the other. Kindness is an obligation to all of us. I learnt that during the lockout, running a soup kitchen at Liberty Hall. I suppose you don't need them anymore. Actually, we do. We still have soup kitchens and homeless people. What? Did Britain invade us again? No, no, we are a republic since 1949. Oh, how splendid. Well, I mean, that's news worth rising from the dead to hear. But if we rule ourselves, why are Irish people still hungry? Afraid there's a great deal of unfinished business, madam. Well, at least there's been reintegration with the North by now, I presume. The six northeastern counties are still in Northern Ireland. Do you mean to tell me? Partition still hasn't been overturned. Oh, well, we must focus on continuing the good fight. The hand of friendship must be extended to our unionist brethren. Rome wasn't built in a day. Oh, perhaps I oughtn't to mention Rome and unionism in the same breath. Now, here's what we must do. Women must become activists again. But we are activists. Well, clearly not active enough. You need to run a campaign along suffragette lines. They understood how to be effective. Heckle senior politicians in public. Chain yourself to the Leinster house railings. Go on marches. Now, whistles, blow them, make a lot of noise. They'll loathe that. The ruling class has no tolerance for noise except when they're making it. I think my generation has just forgotten how to protest in person. We think we can do it all online. Well, I don't know what lines have got to do with it. A dash of turbulence never goes amiss, you know. I remember the time the suffragettes filled their pockets with stones and broke windows the length and breadth of Kildare Street. But you could put somebody's eye out. Besides, it's illegal. Oh, fiddlesticks, what a tame lot you are. If you genuinely believe in something, then it is worth fighting for. What the Irish nation was conjured into being We trusted it would mean equality for all. You can't let some self-centred men scale down the revolution. You must organize and strategize and agitate. I shall meet this Taoiseach of yours and give him a piece of my mind. Uh, What will you say to him? That inequality wrapped in the flag of a republic remains just that, inequality. Shape up, man, I'll tell him, and if he tries to give me any lip, he'll be sorry. Well, actually, I have it on good authority. He has lovely manners. Well, never mind the old courtesy palaver. I don't want men standing up when I enter a room. I want them listening to what I have to say. Come along, young woman. Chop, chop.
1: Well, Countess Markiewicz. Is there, does her story teach us anything today?
3: Can we learn from her? Well, I mean, we can learn from her. I think one of the saddest things is that so little has actually changed, that, you know, that what she stood for and what she fought for. Um, It's absolutely true, I mean, I love this script and I just want to give credit again to Martina who wrote it because I think she has really covered what we all feel quite passionately. And I think it's very clear that we are lacking a legacy from Countess Markovic because we've simply, maybe as women, maybe we gave up, maybe we really did believe that things would follow on. Um, But you know, (laughs) equal opportunities and equal pay and all those things, women in leadership, women in politics, we are still trying to chase that dream and I think if she were really here today she would be absolutely shattered and I, I feel for that and for the struggle and the battles that she and so many others fought for a hundred years ago and that we have not yet still been able to see that come to proper fruition.
1: Does anyone have a question? And we have a roving mic. Uh, she was born in London. They were very wealthy landowners. Her father was an Arctic explorer and they owned Lissadel in Sligo, which was their country estate. They had a house in Dublin and they also had an amazing house in London where she was born in Buckingham Gate, which is uh, just within the shadow of Buckingham Palace. So it's kind of fascinating that she was born into huge wealth, inherited a fair bit of money, and spent her life giving it away.
3: That was very much part of her. What she stood for was her socialism as well as her political beliefs. And, I mean, it must have taken enormous courage to fly in the face of everything that you'd been raised to and brought up to believe. And also at a time, you know, if we think it's bad now, to be a woman in politics and standing up and talking. I mean, gosh, how courageous was that really, you know? And uh, to go and work in the soup kitchens, to to literally put herself out there. I find that very inspiring and I think, yeah, and you know, the fact that everybody votes and marches and does things online now is really not good. I'm so impressed, you know, with this march that Alva was mentioning there coming up. I'm delighted to see that. I'll certainly go out in the streets, and I hope most of the people here today will do the same thing. Because there is nothing like people showing up and turning up. And also meeting people and getting a bit of a spirit going and getting the anger going again. Because we have tolerated a great amount of um Unfairness, let's just put it that way, inequality for so long. So I think when we're looking at extraordinary women like uh, Count Markievicz, that, that actually to think that we don't carry on their fight is dreadful. Uh, and to think that it has been 100 years that we're still fighting for correct representation is shattering. It's absolutely shattering. And I mean, the, the, the politicians that we have will tell you their stories, and Ali will tell you stories about how hard it is to be a woman in, politi- a woman in political life. Um, and that's something that we can all take extra responsibility for. I mean, I don't mind saying that I only vote for women in elections, uh, because I simply believe this is the only way that we will ever get a proper balance in government. And, you know, not all women politicians are going to be brilliant not all male politicians are going to be brilliant. But by golly, until we have a balance of power of men and women, we will never have a truly equal society. That's my firm belief.
1: Mm -hmm. And of course, Eva Gore Booth, her sister, was another extraordinary woman. That family, she worked very hard for labor rights in England with her partner, Esther Roper. So extraordinary pair of sisters. There was a hand up over there.
3: She kept that deliberately, didn't she? She she married uh, count. A, a count, Count Markievitch, and I think she kept it because she wanted to keep. She wanted to distance herself. I think probably from from Gore Booth and from that rather grand history that she had through her family. So I think in a way it it allowed her to be uh, strangely more anonymous in a way, wasn't it? Well, sort of- certainly her own class saw her as
1: having gone rogue and perhaps it was rubbing their noses in it to keep the countess title. We don't know her motives for it though. I don't think it makes her any less of a socialist. She gave her life to the people of Dublin and Ireland indeed. Uh, When she died in 1927, the Gael Government refused to give her a state funeral. But the people of Dublin gave her a de facto state funeral and turned out in thousands
3: on the streets and that's not something that... And that's also not organised by an online thing. That's word of mouth and people talking and people really admiring somebody and wanting to pay tribute to her.
1: She was loved by the people and you can see that in lots of little stories. I came across um, a little factoid which told me she was loved. Uh, When she was in hospital, a country woman said, Madam, you need eggs to build you up. Eggs were hard come by then. And she promised to give her some eggs. But the Countess died before the countrywoman was able to. And at her funeral among this uh, forest of bouquets was a basket with five little speckled eggs. She kept her word. (laughs) Does anyone else have a question for Lisanne?
4: Uh, Reminded me of what it was we set out as women um in society that what we were if you want to say don't like as a traveller a woman using the word fight but to gain equality for for women for uh to, you know to have equal access uh, really and I think with the I'm worse than the government now but anyway I think with the pandemic with uh You know, social media really stops people from uh, and puts the fur into you as well from standing out in the streets and... uh looking for your your not special treatment, but for equal equality of opportunities. Uh, For the first time in three years, I was at a protest on Saturday and it made me feel alive to be back, back in with audience again. And I think that the struggle for Irish women and for women from ethnic minority groups within Irish society is still very much the same. As it was a hundred years ago. You know, like if we even look even in Leinster House, like you don't see a black woman in Leinster House. You don't see um women from ethnic minority groups. Okay, you have one traveller woman who missed out by a narrow margin of votes and I still had to wait for the Taoiseach to be to be uh, to be elected, you know. And and I just think the, the struggles within our society, and we've a lot to fight for. I've got two little girls, and I think we have a future generation to to um, to fight for. And it just thanks, Martina, for the script, and for it was so enjoyable. It brought me right back to actually. This is why I got involved in activism was be, for uh, women's rights, and I just think it was it was lovely. Thanks so much.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and that was Senator Eileen Flynn, and you'll be hearing from her in just one moment. Thank you, Thank you Lisa McLaughlin. Thank you. So the next part of the event is uh, broadcaster Floor McCarthy is going to chair a panel discussion. The panel will take their seats now. And I should just tell you that Floor is a uh, very well-regarded broadcaster and she's also editor of a book called The President's Letters, um, which is pretty much what it says on the tin. It's letters to Irish presidents and uh, Flora will introduce you to the panel.
5: There we go. Well, thank you very much, Martina, um, that lovely introduction. And thank you all so much for joining us. I think it's just wonderful that we finally have uh, an opportunity and an annual event and a day off, um, all of us, women and men, to celebrate our uh, goddess and matron saint, Um, Bridget. So uh, we're going to, as Martina said, I'm just going to grab this, Um, if the rest of you would like to have your water nearby as well. Um, We're going to talk about inspirational women in the company of um, many of them. And uh, these four I certainly find truly inspirational. Justine McCarthy is a multi-award winning columnist who currently works for the Irish Times, um, previously, she was both a columnist and political correspondent for the Sunday Times. Justine is also an investigative journalist who's written books, Deep Deception, *Ireland Swimming Scandals, and Mary McAleese, The Outsider, uh, Justine's from West Cork, which is never a bad thing. Um, <laughs> In June 2020, Eileen Flynn made history when she became the first member of the travelling community to sit in the houses of the Arachtas. A few months later, she was elected chair of a joint Oireachtas committee. A long-time activist, as she just reminded us, um, since even before becoming a politician, Eileen campaigned on issues such as travelers' rights, housing, women's rights, reproductive rights, and anti-racism. Sarah Webb, at the end, who... Uh, most of you will know from Dunleary is a writer with more than a dozen titles to her name. I've lost count, Sarah. <laughs> 40? Oh, 43. Um, and for both adults and children, including uh, her, her best-selling recent one, Blazing a Trail, Irish Women Who Changed the World, a particularly apt, title for this evening. Sarah teaches creative writing, visits schools, gives workshops at festivals, um, does a day week in the uh, bookshop for children in Greystones, halfway up the stairs. Don't know how you squeeze all this in. She's family and children's programmer for the Museum of Literature Ireland, Molly and she's also been writer in residence here in the Lexicon. What a nice gig. Um, and we have Zainab Bulladale, or Bola Dale, either is uh, good, uh, who's been a reporter and presenter with RTE program nationwide for the past four years. Who hasn't? <laughs> uh, previously, she was a presenter with children's news program News Today, born in Lagos and brought up in County Clare. Uh, Zainab moved to Dublin to study journalism at DCU, where she began to win awards almost immediately. Uh, One of her future career aims is to direct and present long-form documentaries and Zainab, I have no doubt that he will. Just to say, on the choices of women that we're going to mention, the selection of course isn't comprehensive, Um, it was simply a chat. That we had and these were the names of some of the the women who um, came up a few were mentioned by all five of us others by just one Um, and you know if you asked us again tomorrow it would probably be a, a very different selection and I'm sure that would be the same for you but we've tried in our small selection to include women from the past and from the present women who made a stand who battled for rights so that we don't have to. And there are women who, of course we still do in many cases, there are women who lived in the spotlight and others for whom it was the last thing in the world they wanted. So a common thread uh, through each one is that they made or are making a stand and making the world a better place for all society. And that we find inspiring, okay. I've been hitting the clicker inadvertently. There we go, back to the beginning. Um, Justine, we're starting with what was an event which marked an enormous change for Ireland and for women in particular. When we elected the first female president for the first time in our history, and then we did it again, three terms between them, 21 years. Um, You remember the news breaking, don't you? The day that uh, Mary Robinson won the election,
6: I remember it almost as if it was a great festival in Central America, but the, the ecstasy was palpable. Um, I remember it being on the bus from Dunleary, going into town, and as the bus went through Boards Bridge, looking out the window and just seeing. Uh, men hugging women, women hugging women, Um, people on the bus, just the buzz, the excitement. I remember men buying women red roses and not just because the red rose was the, the symbol of the Labour Party. It really was as if women had come home into the state for the first time, really, that we were being welcomed in. Um, and it had been after such a bruising um, presidential campaign, campaign
1: yeah.
6: um, with some of the best sound bites ever heard in an election campaign. Um, the, uh, the slogan, Mary uh, Robinson's campaign slogan, A Woman's Places in the auras was just pure magic. Um, her great line in her elect- election speech that the, the hand that rocked the cradle had rocked the system. Um, uh I think the fact of her election changed Ireland in itself. If she had just gone into Earth's new and stayed in bed for the next seven years, it would still have changed Ireland. Um what were the main changes as you
5: see them in, in I think her presidency? Just
6: to, overall she made Ireland grow up. Um she made the presidency relevant. She went out and physically associated herself. With people all around the country who felt marginalized, who didn't feel like full citizens. I remember covering her visits to women's refuges, which were and still are uh, terribly um, under-resourced and underfunded. She did a lot of work with members of the uh, traveling community. Um, She did a lot of work with women. I was very lucky because I was a features and colour writer at the time for the Irish Independence, so I got to cover an awful lot of her presidency. Uh, I remember going to London when she made the first official visit as an Irish president to um, the, the then Queen Elizabeth. Um, and I remember looking at Dick Spring, who was the tourish at the time, standing outside in the courtyard as the Irish guard... Uh, played um, a sort of medley of Irish songs. And then we heard the Irish national anthem being played in Buckingham Palace and seeing Dick Spring, this tough macho man, trying to hold in the tears. um, Such
5: was the momentous The the power of that
6: moment. I also had the great privilege of covering her trip to Somalia and... um, I don't think we understand quite what a a momentous event that was, not just for Ireland, but on the world stage and certainly for
5: Africa and Somalia. Well, she wrote afterwards to every world head of state um, and... Went to the UN in she New York. She flew to New York to the UN. To, to say something must be done. That's right. And she came back from Somalia down to
6: Kenya and held press conference in Nairobi immediately afterwards. And all the emotion that she had pent up from meeting um, people in Somalia, and she met women's groups, she went out of her way specifically to meet women's groups, it just exploded. And this extremely reserved, proper, sophisticated, educated woman cried. On cameras,
5: on television.
6: On television. Mm. And she said afterwards that she regretted it. But I think it was the best thing that could have happened for somebody like her to be so moved by it.
5: Yeah. Apparently she was quite annoyed with herself and said, why did I lose it? You know, on television. But she received a beautiful letter from Seamus Heaney. Um, among hundreds of others. And he said to her, um, to have you, who you are and where you are, uh, for us is something to behold, you were magnificent.
6: Yeah. And of course, it was the start, it was the sort of, I believe, awakening for her of the correlation between what was happening in the so-called first world and the repercussions for countries, especially in Africa, and the foundation of her organization, um, Climate Justice. And, I mean, to think that that Irish woman from Mayo is now, you know, the senior elder, hand-picked by Nelson Mandela. She, it, no matter where she speaks in the world, people queue up to hear her, and she's somebody, you know, that we really have to be proud of. When I told people I was going to talk about Mary Robinson in this um, event called Wild Irish Women, a couple of people said to me, but Mary Robinson wasn't wild. Oh my God, she was. Very early on in Shannadaran, she was thrown out of of the chamber for um, speaking on behalf of an usher who had been apparently unfairly transferred out of the,
5: the Opera House. She was denounced from the pulpit? She was denounced from the pulpit. <laughs> in her native mail? Yes. yeah. Sarah, you remember um, voting for Mary Robinson in that election, don't
7: you? Yes, To remember to use this? Yes, it was the first time I voted. Um, i just registered the year before, and um, it was really exciting to me to be able to vote for a woman my first time. Um, and you've a, written about her. Yeah, yeah. She was, I was very, um, she was the first person. I, a couple of years ago, it was 2017, I pitched a book to O'Brien Press called Blazing a Trail, Irish Women Who Changed the World. And um, the piece that I sent in as a kind of sample piece was a piece about Mary Robinson. And I just explained to O'Brien how I went into schools, a lot. Um, every week I go into a different school in Ireland and talk to them about books and creativity. But I always tell them about Mary Robinson as well, because. but I found I was going into schools and often even the teacher, let alone the students, didn't know who she was. And I found that very disappointing. So. I thought well we should actually have a book so that when i go in i can leave a book and they can find out more about mary and about hannah she's geffington and mary heath and all kinds of women so there's about 30 women in the book but mm-hmm. uh, she was the first one um yeah. Yeah, yeah so she was very important to me and
5: thanks sarah eileen of course um like mary robinson um you started in the in the Shanod. she also started her political career there, really, and do you feel that the Shannon there in the Opera House is a place where women can make a difference uh,
4: firstly uh, just to say when I was six, I remember actually meeting uh, Mary Robinson in a um, at a woman's group in uh, mines and like to think that you know to be a young traveler child at the age of six to. Be look like I actually think Mary Robinson changed women's views as well because sometimes we are like not the word a problem ranting, but you know we're or should never say but however you know you're 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 used to traditions, you're used to this certain way of life, and you're afraid to go outside of the of the norms. And I think Mary Robinson changed that for a lot of women, and especially for uh, for 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 traveller women, if you if if you want. And um, I think that if uh, If the Shannon is used uh, not as a political football, it's not so as what the doll is, you know, it it can be a place of change. Uh, If you look at uh, Lynne-Yuan, Alice Murray-Higgins, Frances Black, the three women that I have, the great um, pleasure to work with on a daily basis, Mm. you know, and if you go in there and you say true to your passion, what was previously said, if you say true to... Why you're there, your uh, values and your principles well, then you, you, you can't go wrong and you know sometimes when you come from a minority group. Uh, or from uh, the likes of it's the Traveller community, whatever it may be. And we don't belong to the, in these kind of places. You know, sometimes you can see uh, people calling you a traitor or, you know, because now you're part of the... the like the, crossing the, some the, invisible yeah, line. Yeah, just now you're part of the system. But unless you're in there, you can't change it. Mm. And every single day, mm. that's what we, tend, what we try our best to do.
5: And, of course, Mary Robinson and then Mary McAleese uh, really opened up and invited in groups such as LGBTQ groups to to, to come and visit the place and make them feel welcome and travellers organisations as well. Um, Mary McAleese continued that work that Mary Robinson had started. And I just found this great line that on the 11th of November, 1997, when Mary McAleese was inaugurated in Dublin Castle, they became the first two female presidents to be elected consecutively in any country in the world.
4: Yeah.
5: Look what we did.
4: Yeah, yeah.
5: Um, Briefly, Justine, just coming on to, to Mary McAleese, what do you feel were the uh, differences that she made? For women and for Ireland. Well,
6: can I just say, first of all, the, um, the, one of the differences Mary Robinson made was that women then believed that they could become the president of Ireland. Yeah. So, in the following yeah. presidential election campaign, there were four women candidates, and they were dubbed the Spice Girls election. And. Uh, Mary McAleese on paper had a lot in common with Mary Robinson, they were both called Mary, they were both um, professors, uh, uh, both been Reed professors of Law and Criminology in Trinity College, um, but in other ways they were chalk and cheese and that was encapsulated in 1984 when Mary Robinson attended the New Ireland Forum in Dublin Castle as a member of the Labour Party delegation and Mary McAleese attended, um, accompanying the Irish bishops. And Mary Robinson actually asked Mary McAleese a question at at the Forum um, about the continuation of religiously segregated education, and Mary McAleese defended it. So while you had Mary Robinson, the ultimate liberal reformer, Uh, who was in, you know, campaigned for divorce, abortion rights, uh, contraception, uh, all sorts of equality. You had Mary McAleese, who voted in favour of the 1983 abortion referendum, was adamantly against divorce, and which had been Mm -hmm. seen as very much a sort of orthodox catholic one of the first things she did that caused a furore when she became president was she went into christ church cathedral and received protestant holy communion and which was described as a sham a sham by cardinal desmond connell at the time yeah but in fact she had been doing that all along when she was a student in queen's university she had Actually joined a, a Bible group run by the Church of Ireland chaplain in Queens, and had started going into uh, Protestant churches. So they were both really pushing the boundaries. Both were, Mary and Robinson and They were both and Mary complex, Robinson. and I think what's really interesting is, unlike a lot of the politicians we were used to, who are black and white. They were very nuanced mm-hmm. people and they were very sophisticated politicians. Mm-hmm. These were women who really used their education and their brains and their intelligence, about combined with the sensitivity and the care that about the good, you know, the, the, the good
5: of the country and the public. Zainab- Mary McAleese was already in throne when you were growing up and I'm just wondering you didn't have to wait like like most of us um, for a, a woman president this was normality for you and you know that phrase if you if you can see it you can be it do you think was that inspiring for younger women your age to have a female president or did you think about it?
8: To be honest, at the time, there was no thought about it because it was just a standard, which I suppose is what you want. You want to live in a world where it's not weird to have female politicians as the normalcy. But at the time, I would have remembered um, I had an S V A T teacher who was like banging on about how amazing it is that we lived in a country where we've had two female presidents. I'm sure we were all like, and so. (laughs) But I think that's that's kind of precious, the innocence of that, of not realising like what you have and how significant what you have is. And it's only now as an adult looking back that I can say like that is actually an amazing thing to have lived in like, to have lived in a time where having female Influences to look up to were there, and I think even now, like when we look at like the state of politics around the world, and having that as a historical context of Ireland, it's amazing because I think it just gives young women, young women, um, the chance to be able to have ambitions as big as men, especially in Ireland. Do you think it comes more easily to your generation to to take a stand than it does to the rest of us? I think it comes more easily, but I think we have bigger awareness of the battles we face. And I think that that's a hard thing to balance, knowing like the fights you want to fight for, but constantly trying to find the energy and the time and the space, because there are so many things that are currently affecting our generation, such as, you know, housing crisis, employment crisis, no matter what industry you're in. Um, And I think having those present things that we're fighting with in our daily life, and then having the bigger battles there in the context of what we're trying to do, it's hard. But I think there is a lot of there is a lot of grit within our generation where I think sometimes older people um, sometimes don't appreciate because um, it's, it's it's a tough world we live in where information is at our fingertips. And because of that, we are able to kind of like, um, I sort of want to say, unify ourselves and have the same kind of um, approach to fighting for the bigger struggles that we face, but at the same time, it can be very exhausting. Well, you've heard
5: of the marriage bar, um, Zainab. It sounds extraordinary, like something from a few million years ago. But before we leave the presidents, I just want to tell you one Quick story, this uh, woman on the right is Bridget Murphy. She's no longer with us. It's great to have a Bridget uh, to celebrate. She had to be in the mix. She was secretary to our first president, Douglas Hyde, in Orison throne in 1938 and 39. But of course, when she got married, she had to quit her job (laughs) and have it uh, free for a nice young man to, to, to take instead. So Bridget Murphy went off, lived her life, and years later, 1990, she was one of the first um, to volunteer for the president's, uh, for the election campaign of Mary Robinson, who herself, as a lawyer, had fought to get rid of the marriage bar. Okay, we're going to move on. Eileen, um, you said a great line to me the other day when we were discussing tonight, and I'm going to quote it back to you. Okay. I, I know politicians <laughs> don't love this. But uh, what you said was, um, That this new uh, bank holiday and this new celebration of Bridget is a time to take a pause and to look back at how far we've come and then to look forward at how far we have to go. So let's take a look back for a moment. As we said, 1990 we had our first female president but as far back as 1919 as we heard Lisanne read from Martina's work, Constance Markovitz had become her first female government minister. Um, the women of the revolutionary era certainly blazed a trail and the decade of centenaries over the past 10 years has really shone a spotlight on, on many of those um, and there are so many we could name, mm-hmm. Kathleen Lynn, the common Amman women. Justine, you mentioned Hannah Sheehy-Skeffington briefly, why? I just found her so inspiring,
6: and um, you'll appreciate this, Flora, first and foremost. She was born in Cork. Yes. Um, That's enough, really, not isn't often it? an acknowledged fact. <laughs> um, she grew up in Tipperary. She was a trade unionist, a suffragist, a, a promoter of freedom. She was a hunger striker. She refused the offer of compensation from the British government for the murder of her husband um, who had been trying to stop looting during the Easter Rising and was executed um, in Dublin and she fought and fought to have an inquiry Uh, which was eventually held an inquiry into his killing. She um, did a tour of America and raised a a lot of money there for um, the uh, political funds. She also did a tour of Russia, which is something that we don't hear much about either. Um, Like almost all the other women um, after the treaty, she um, resisted. she opposed the treaty. In fact, Common Man was the first organisation in the country to formally pass a motion opposing the treaty. Um, other women might have just faded from the mm. political scene after that experience of being quite disappointed with the way Um, things had worked out and you know with the the way women were treated but she actually was one of the very early sort of second wave uh, feminists and uh, as the state started to evolve um, she would have campaigned uh, against the marriage bar Mm -hmm. she campaigned for equal pay and for reform of duties uh, juries
5: so she never gave up on the fight. So difficult because so many of those revolutionary women, say, in the first two decades of the last century, by 1937, we had a former government minister, J.J. J. Walsh, saying um, the wheels of the women's uh, revolution must be reversed. And he said, describing them, their poisonous fangs were everywhere in evidence in the formation of the state. I mean, it was going backwards rather than women's rights advancing. And yet people like Hannity scaffington stuck with it. And um, he got elected. Yes, yes, yes. Sarah, still uh, in, in history, um, looking back some decades, you've written about women who received barely any recognition while <laughs> they were alive for their genius such as Eileen Gray, for example, who was allegedly discovered age 78 in Paris. So
7: well, in she knew fur- she was
5: brilliant already.
7: Yeah, well, in fairness to Eileen Gray, she actually was pretty famous mm. in her day and then was forgotten about yeah. and then rediscovered. Yeah, yeah but she in, was in extraordinary. Yeah. And
5: Agnes Mary Clark from
7: yeah. Skibarine. <laughs> I know, Flora, you love her because she's from your hometown. <laughs> um, and because she yeah. was an
5: amazing astronomer as well.
7: Yeah, well, she was. I guess she was a science writer and educator mm. Um, she was remarkable. She uh, couldn't go to college because women weren't allowed in college at the time. This was, um, she was born in the 1840s, um, but her brother was in Trinity, and he, her, family, her father and her brother seemed to be kind of early feminists, which is nice. And he um, shared his books with his sister, and she kind of studied uh, and he helped her study, which was really good. And she was um, sending articles to English newspapers and ended up writing about scientists for the Encyclopaedia Britannica and then wrote a book all about astronomy, um, which is even, it's read to this day, and it kind of um, is kind of an early popular science kind of book that people found very accessible. Yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. she she was never schooled, you know, she kind of taught herself, which wow. is amazing.
5: It really is. And staying with um, science and the medical field, Zainab, there's a a woman you chose to speak about who sounds really incredible. Dr. Monica Perez-Oike, can you tell us a bit about her?
8: Um, So Dr. Monica Perez-Oike is a Black Irish doctor. Um, She grew up in Dublin. She's already a Nigerian and she now lives in Cork but um, I kind of chose... another one. <laughs> they're all from Cork. <laughs> um, no bias <advice> here today. <laughs> um, but one of the reasons I just think she's absolutely amazing is because um, around the start of the pandemic, she, choose, she chose to use her online platform um, to kind of spread of accurate information about COVID and you know how to accurately protect yourself and things like that. But then after that, her um, online contact took a turn where she started to talk about black healthcare in Ireland um, there are certain um, there are certain health things that um, would be more predominant in black people, such as um, sickle cell disease, which is kind of um, hereditary, I want to say, um, and PCOS and different other things, um, such as type 2 diabetes, it's more prevalent in black people. And she chose to use her platform to talk about these diseases because she said that she found from her experiences that very often in medicine all over the world, there are certain things that black people will, compl- will complain about, um, and they're not... Addressed because they don't affect the majority of people. Um, so, her Black health, health Minutes have been really interesting for me to watch. Um, I suppose maybe I'm coming from a journalistic angle where I'm hearing these things, and she goes through the history of healthcare, she goes through present day healthcare in Ireland, and she also just highlights different things. And I think for me as a journalist, it's very interesting to kind of see like she's a doctor who's speaking about these things and as someone who suffers from PCOS it's interesting because I know my experience in the Irish healthcare industry and trying to get a diagnosis has been kind of difficult as well and to kind of hear that from another woman is insightful. And isn't it brilliant the way she is using technology,
5: using an online platform like a beacon to say if you are young black women you know here I am if you you need help. Of course, we can't speak about medical champions without mentioning the wonderful Vicky Phelan. Um, Eileen, you got to know Vicky quite well, didn't you, during her extraordinary battle for women's health and her own?
4: Yeah. um... Well, when I say quite well, um, I sat in many uh, platforms with uh, Vicky, and I was privileged to be able to uh, do that over the years. And then the odd uh, conversation on, uh, on 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 social media, and uh, for me, um, she she broke down the barriers as well uh, for women to talk about uh, cervical uh, checks. To to talk about women's health, uh, really. So she didn't just break the glass stealing uh, for the for the HSC and and the scandal that we've seen. What Vicky did was uh, educated us and pushed us to look after ourselves as as women as well. And I think that's absolutely uh, remarkable. And I think uh, Vicky will never be uh, forgotten for 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 what she did and for the mother she is for the person uh, she is and um, the campaigner that and and the women that she brought water as well seeking justice she didn't she wasn't a selfish woman she didn't want justice for herself she wanted justice for all the women and that's what change is about it's about the collective action it's about bringing people with you and i think um vicky really did that and and again like you know Myself, you'd be embarrassed getting your cervical checks done or thinking, oh, like, you know, I'm okay, I'm grand. Mm. And then, you know, like, only really recently my GP saved my life, you know, that kind of way for yeah. going for um, a smear and then just getting cells uh, burnt away. And again, knowing someone like Vicky and knowing it's nothing to be ashamed of. Mm. I just think it's it's and yeah. it's the little things that saves our lives and especially mm-hmm. people from minority groups as well because in 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 our community, you know, like I still see which is something that we need to speak about as a community: the, the, the young marriage, the a woman's place is in the home. Now we're seeing the change, but it's not changing to the speed that we need as a as a as as a community, if you want. So there's and like you know there's a lot of changes in Ireland for for women's rights, but is it changing for women from minority groups? And and th- at that speed, while it's slow for all women, it's slower again. Uh, for women from minority groups and I think being born a woman puts you at at a disadvantage but then you're even worse
5: off again if you have a disability or if you're from another uh, group. Women like you are changing that for us all. (coughs) Um, Justine, you mentioned in that similar vein Christine Buckley, Catherine Corliss, Mary Raftery, all women who uh, were single-minded in trying to change things for, for the rest of us. We need to um, speed up a little. I think I'm losing the run of myself with the, the, the clock. Martina, you'll uh, let us know <laughs> if we have to um, speed up even faster. up there's a woman you wanted to include um, here. Yeah. And uh, I've my characterisation of this, uh, my headline is random. <laughs> She's not Irish, she has no connection uh, with Ireland, except that she played here on many occasions and her photo is hanging in Paddy O'Shea's bar. Any guesses? Mm. There you go. <laughs> Where is she
8: gone? That's not her. <laughs> There she there is. We go, there we go. <laughs> Why did you choose Dolly Parton? Do you know what? It's just because I absolutely love her, but it's more than that as well. It's way more than that as well. Dolly Parton is a woman that's inspired me since I've been very, very young. I've seen loads of interviews about her and the way she composes herself and handles herself is just absolutely admirable. But she said something that will always stick to me. Um, she kind of said that femininity sometimes is viewed as a weakness, but you have to stand in it with strength. And she's a woman that embodies femininity with so much strength and confidence that it's hard not to look away. And I think also, she's also a woman who has put her money where her mouth is, in terms of like, over the years, she's very philanthropic. But here in Ireland, while I was um, working on news today, it was 2019 and she started the Imagination Library here in Ireland, which what that means is it's a free book donated to kids every month. So the kids registered for the for the Imagination Library and they get sent out a free book every month. And as someone who spent a lot of my time in the library, that just really touched me because when I was younger my mom was working and you know we didn't have a lot of money just to like buy books and I've always loved books so I thought about that and I thought about what kind of life she's changing just by giving the gift of reading giving the gift of a free book that is owned so mm. it's just it's she's just amazing to me <laughs> brilliant and
5: I think there was uh, a lot of nodding in the audience mm. there and beside you Sarah well, you on know books of course she
6: said she didn't mind being called
5: a dumb blonde
6: mm-hmm. because she said I know I'm
5: not blonde <laughs> <laughs> yeah I loved the line where she said, Honey, it takes a lot of money to look this cheap. (laughs) A a famous one. Um, Eileen, theme 1970s. If we look at that time, it was a time of such upheaval, um, making the headlines, of course, were Ireland joining the EEC 50 years ago this month. We had the Irish Women's Liberation Movement organising the contraceptive train to Belfast in May 1971. And of course, the Troubles in the North. And uh, you chose Bernadette Devlin as somebody you found inspiring, why?
4: Yeah, and like, For me, as as an activist uh, speaking out, you know, I spoke out around repeal, although I'm I'm religious, but I'm I'm also pro-choice. And and that was very new within my community and LGBTQI plus as well. And I was looking for life-minded women and I stumbled across Alva in 2015 and then uh, Bernadette Devlin as well. Like, I look at those boat women like as change makers, as people who spoke about the pill, about uh, protection for women, um, and um, Bernadette Devlin, like you know, to get into Parliament as as not only a woman, but as a 21-year-old uh, woman uh, from the north, and she did it first. And I remember even during the campaign, I, my own uh, campaign, reaching out to those two women. And you know, sometimes when when we're going, do you ever hear that? Um, never uh, look down on people on your way, never look down on people because you don't know when you'll need them on your way back down when you're going up, you know? Yeah. And, and and for me, I think like, you know, Bernadette Devlin talks about a lot, we're born into an unjust world, but we're not meant to grow up in it. And 33 years ago, I was born into it and I grew up in it. And now I have two, I have two girls in, in this unjust world and looking for equality of opportunities because we are all different have the right to be different, but we're all of equal worth uh, to the world. And that's what particularly um, Alba and uh, Bernadette uh, Devlin has, has taught me. It's just brilliant, like women that that, that push those forward if you want, you know. Yeah. So, uh.
5: Justine, uh, a local woman who you mentioned, uh, who you covered a lot in politics, of course, was Monica Barnes. Why did you pick her, briefly? Because I think she was one of the early sort of...
6: Uh, feminists who was embraced by the um, establishment actually. Um, And I think it was largely because of her personality. Um, She was just a very warm uh, human being who talked a lot of sense and she was a breath of fresh air. She reminded me very much of a, a woman who was one of the two most influential women in my life One of whom was a Bridget, my own mother, who um, was widowed at the age of 38 and had four daughters aged from 10 to one year old. And the woman whom Monica Barnes reminds me of was my mother's best friend, Mary Taff, whose husband died when she was 28 and she had three sons and she was the first woman to return to work in the state agricultural sector after the marriage bar was lifted. She was a poultry instructor. And when I was a child, my mother and Mary would sit up until two or three o'clock in the morning, smoking their heads off, having heated political debates. This was and
5: formative for you, absolutely. I presume. Absolutely,
6: me and my three sisters. We were not only allowed just to sit in the room; we were encouraged to take part in the debates and to make our arguments. And to Brilliant. you know, we learned how to actually mount a case and and, and win your argument sometimes even.
5: Yeah, what what a wonderful way to uh, grow up and have those those strong women. Um, I discovered in in researching for this that uh, Monica shares a story with the wonderful Nan Joyce, Eileen, in that they both stood for election, general election in 1982. Um, Can you tell us really briefly, we're going to go to the audience for questions, if you'd like to get them ready. Um, really briefly about Nan Joyce. Just, uh, Nan was a powerful ins- inspiration for, not only for Traveller women but
4: for the whole Traveller community. She was the first ever member of our community to put herself up in elections. But actually the general elections which is even tougher again. And back then which was an awful lot she got 500 votes and uh, and like she did it being a real, there was no such a thing as a fake member of the traveller community, but back then you, you lived, you, you're in a wagon, you're around the side of the road. It was very tough and she did it being herself. So I absolutely loved that, like, you know, rocking the boat really while staying in the boat and being able to be, be, be
7: yourself
5: oh,
4: in
7: This society. photograph, such yeah.
5: character in, in that yeah. face. Um, and
7: Sarah? <laughs> Yeah, this is the amazing Rashida Delika, who became the fastest woman in the world so far. Now I know we're only in January, but um, I do hope she represents us in Paris next year. She is extraordinary. Uh, 200 metres was her distance and she is currently, she ran the fastest European 200 indoor, 200 metres indoors in 20 years. Like she's extraordinary. Yeah. Brilliant. She's from Tala. Yeah.
5: Brilliant. Okay. Any questions for the panel? There is a hand up high at the back. No, I'd just like to say how much I've enjoyed this inspiring evening. It's really a very joyful event.
2: Uh, Thank you. I'm lucky enough to bump into uh, Justine, uh, who knew my mother, another breed. Uh, (laughs) uh, I I have a a daughter uh, breed and I met Justine out wheeling
5: my new granddaughter around. Uh, Is she agreed. Uh, three weeks ago. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, uh, we,
2: we, she might get. Uh, so, uh, when Justine so was telling me about the, the 1500 years of the wild women, I thought, oh, I, perhaps I can do something with the project I'm involved in, which was, was started by an Obel laureate, a woman from uh, Kenya, who started the Greenbelt movement and the World. Yeah which is now the world Tree Tree campaign and the aim is to bring down temperature by one degree. So I was very heartened to hear many references to Mary Robinson's climate justice uh, drive. And so uh, we planted 1,500 trees
0: in Barrettstown last week with the project Easy treesy and uh, we are planting trees for children all over the country to rewild or restore the country. And uh, so I'd uh,
5: invite all people in the room to Find a
0: corner
5: for a tree somewhere, uh, right tree in the right place. Well done. Thanks. <laughs> uh, uh, well done. Very good. Excellent. <laughs> you could say that about policy uh-huh. as well. And while we're at it, local woman Flossie Donnelly, who Sarah has written about, who's also doing great work for the environment. Anyone else? St. Government. Or Johnny okay. Brook is called after John McBrown. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Does anybody know anything about it? No, I'm sorry. No, I've h- heard of her, of course, but uh, no. Yeah. Ah. She's, She's all right, son. And... Oh, yes. So that is associated
2: with my born Never well
5: well thank you what an expert audience we have tonight thanks uh, yes woman in in uh, purple That's brilliant. Thank you. And up at the back. Uh, this is actually just a uh, uh,
3: question for Eileen. I actually just when you mentioned mention that um, you, you said a statement there about in your community, if, you're, um, if you don't see somebody in your community, obviously can kind not of to inspire And I just wonder now, because I, I, I heard you um, speak a couple of years ago, um, international Women's name, and I just wondered if the couple of years that have happened in your life,
4: you think when you I you yeah. Yeah, I was just pre- briefly uh, told at the weekend by one of the protesters that I was a traitor to my uh, community and um I I don't believe that to be true. I don't believe the Traveller community believes that to be true either. Um, I think things are changing. Uh, What I said to um, Miriam O'Callaghan going back in 2020 in June was, you know, we do say if you can see it, you can be it. But even if you can't see it, it's it's, it's not like that. You just don't, you just can't be it if you don't get the equality of opportunities to be it. Uh, and, and and again, like, there's equal access to education, but we need to be successful within the education system, and we're seeing that more. But we need jobs, we need to be able... Because travellers do want to work, travellers do value education, and I've seen to more so a lot of men interested in politics uh, than, than, than women, if, if you want. But, you know, like we are a very resilient uh, community, and I'll just finish up in in, in saying that. And I don't think, like, not not 40,000 travelers are going to support me anyway, you know? But uh, what we do do as a community is stand by, because we are one community, no matter what, we stand by each other. Uh, uh, And I think that's important as well, so, yeah. Thank
5: you. I think that man. Yes, we've got a hand up there, gentlemen at the back.
4: she did represent the New of in the hmm yes
6: is first that yeah
5: She did, she crossed the house to do so, yeah, yeah, Yeah. she was, was. (laughs) (laughs) two excellent comments, thank you very much for those, okay and with that we're going to have to wind up, I'm terribly sorry to say because I for one could sit here and talk about interesting inspirational women all night, thank you all so much for joining us and thanks to our panel.
1: Thank you for coming, thanks to the panel. I need to acknowledge that um, DLR Libraries and Carmel Kelly sponsored uh, our our Wild Women event tonight. Um, All the panellists, all the contributors had something to offer. I learned a couple of things that you might like to take home with you. One, if a road or a path doesn't exist, make one. Uh, Number two, women are allowed to talk back. And number three, this occurred to me while I was sitting there, women aren't born with flat stomachs.